Welcome into our fifth of our series, and today is chapter seven on marriage and singleness. And on marriage and singleness, we also, as a church, has launched our marriage charter. So we invite couples to go into our website and uh, look into the marriage charter, and we'll help you navigate through it on our marriage charter at our website. So today there are 40 verses. I will not be reading all of them, but I will be jumping from place to place. I hope you all have done your homework reading through it, especially the small groups. You probably have read through it in preparation. So uh, let us uh, come before the Lord in prayer as we worship. Now may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts, Lord, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here in chapter 7, Paul starts to answer many questions that the Corinthians have been asking. And just in chapter 7 are the questions and answers on issues of singleness and marriage. For example, somewhere inside, he was probably answering questions like, can I leave my unholy marriage? And on another occasion, he was probably answering questions like, can I go ahead with wedding plans? But the first one that really topples this whole uh, understanding is, is it good? Celibacy. Is celibacy good? And uh, that, that is what the verse 1 connotes, that not to touch a woman has to do with a sexual contact. It has also to do with keeping a chaste life without sexual intercourse. And so it seems that Paul agrees. And you look through the whole of chapter 7, Paul actually agrees. He says, yes, I wish that all were as I myself am. Verse 8, to the unmarried, to the widows, I say, it is well for them to remain unmarried as I am. So you go through the whole chapter, you will see that this is also an agreement that Paul made. But we must understand the context that Paul was writing to. This is a situation in the church in Corinth. First of all, it is a highly sexually immoral city. Last week when we covered chapter 6, this was written in description. Sexually immoral, idolatrous, uh, I, uh, adulterous, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers. Then Paul added that is what some of you were. So he was writing to the church and many of the new converts and Christians had a life like that. So they are very familiar. They were like people from Alcoholics Anonymous. They were people who came from the streets. And so they had participated in many of this immorality even as they have now started a new life in Christ. So they are new converts. This church may be just about Christians with one to four-year-old Christians. Maybe the older leaders among them may be just six-year-old Christians. So it's a very young church. The climate is that they were cynical of marriage. You know, people come and go, they take sex partners here and there. It was like, sex was like a recreation to them. And so people were cynical with the institution of marriage. Then there were radical Christian theology. 
For example, among them, there were some legalists. And they were like the Jews. They said, let's go back to the law. Let's observe the dietary law. Let's observe the Mosaic law. Let's be legalists when we come to our new religion. Some were clearly hiddenists. We read it in the previous chapter, uh, verse 13, where they say that food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food when it comes to sex. So they're saying, yeah, you know, if you have an appetite, just go and satisfy that appetite. And that's how they treated sex. And Christians among them had this attitude. That's why Paul was quoting them. Then there are the ascetics. Well, these are the hyper-spiritual people, you know, some kind of maybe bordering towards the cult. They were saying that, you know, we go into fasting and praying all the time, pray unceasingly, so don't let your spouse touch you. And so there were spouse who uh, converted to Christianity and then they abstain from sex totally because they say, I want to be pure for the Lord. Sex is evil, sex is unspiritual. And so you have all kinds of issues that Paul was addressing. In this one chapter, he has to pick up all this in the questions they have for him. Imagine. So I want to draw broadly four guiding perspectives or principles that Paul picked up from here in his chapter 7 and suggest that this is how Paul approached it and how we can draw some application from there in our lives when it comes to marriage and singleness. Christ's return, freedom, responsibility, good order and devotion to the Lord. So first of all, Christ's return. You would see that throughout the whole book, this was underlined in Paul's writings. Chapter 1, verse 7, waiting for the revealing of the Lord. Then in a few chapters, he mentioned the day of the Lord. The Lord's coming, chapter 4, verse 5. Until he comes, chapter 11, verse 28. And then at the end, when you sign off your letter, you say Maranatha, which means the Lord come, or come, O Lord. It is the Aramic calling of welcoming the second coming of Christ. So this is foremost in Paul's thinking when he was writing this letter. And it was a thought at that time that this would be preceded by trials, by tribulations, by a period of persecution. And so you read the book of Revelations, you will get this idea of how things are going to get from bad to worse until Christ comes again. And so when he thought about that, the whole letter he was thinking about how we are all on crisis mode. All of us Christians are preparing for Christ's coming and we should be in crisis mode. And that's why he suggested, I think that in view of the impending crisis, or in verse 28, he says, those who marry will experience distress in this life and I would spare you that. Well, many people have to anticipate distress when they are planning for their wedding. Maybe not so now, but in those days, he's telling them, you expect more distress if you're ever going to plan your marriage. The appointed time has gone short. So he was anticipating maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe the soldiers will all be coming at us. The present form of this world is passing away. So don't hold things too tightly. Whether it is your home, it is your farm, it is your marriage, it is your, your relationship. Beware, you know, this, this present world is just going to pass us by very soon. 
I want you to be free from anxieties. So this was quite foremost in Paul's thought when he agreed and he said, celibacy is good. Celibacy is good. Would Paul change his mind if conditions were different? I think this is what we have to ask because we are living today 2,000 years away from Paul and in a different city. It seemed that to a certain extent, Paul made a change. Here in his chapter 7, he recommended, in my judgment, the widow is more blessed if she remains as she is. But later on, when he was writing First Timothy to the Ephesians, Timothy was a leader in Ephesus. And he said, I counsel younger widows to marry. So he seemed to change in his view. Is it because he was writing to a different city? Is it because the time had changed? This was eight years later from the time he wrote Corinthians chapter uh, uh, book 1. So we have to ask ourselves this, is it still applicable when Paul insists that celibacy is good? Good forever, good for everyone? We have to ask this issue. I think Paul still wants us to remember and the New Testament wants us to remember Christ's return. This may be a problem for us because generally Christians tend to be complacent in our age. I took, talk to some Christians and they tend to say, you know, pastor, Christ says he's been coming, but it's been 2,000 years. I don't suppose he will come in my lifetime. And so maybe I still take care of my business. I want to grow my, my family and, and I want to plan this. I want to plan that. But this attitude is something that you read the whole of the New Testament. It is against it wants all Christians to have that sense of urgency and that sense of expectancy that the Lord may be coming anytime. And even if you think statistically, maybe not in my lifetime because it didn't happen in my grandfather's time, it didn't happen in my great-grandfather's time, maybe even not in my children's lifetime, the Bible wants us to always live with this high urgency and expectancy so that we hold the things of the world lightly so that we do not cling to many things in our life and recognize that we are merely pilgrims passing through. We are really aliens in this world. This is not our home. Our home is where Jesus, when he comes again or when he takes us home. And that is the attitude that I think Paul leaves with us even though we may say that the issues of celibacy may not be as strictly enforced today as Paul had recommended. Even as we celebrate the Holy Communion, we are reminded how Paul mentioned in the First Corinthians chapter 11, he says that we do this in anticipation until Christ comes again. And even in our Holy Communion ritual, we always say, until Christ comes in final victory and we feast as His heavenly banquet. Even in our celebration of the Holy Communion, we are always taught to look forward to the second coming and live with high expectancy and urgency so that we do not cling to many things in this life as if they were prime and important 
to us. Secondly, it is that issue of Christian freedom that I think it guided Paul's writings on marriage and singleness. In the letter he was saying, whoever was called in the Lord, even the slave, is a freed person belonging to the Lord. So he's talking about a freedom that we receive once we are in Christ. And then he said to the others, Mary, this is not a sin. Then he mentioned, this is not to put any restraint on you. Let them marry. So on many occasions, he did mention this. So as to suggest, although he affirms at that point, celibacy is good, marriage is not sinful, marriage is not evil, marriage is normal. Now on the perspective of freedom, throughout his writings, he picks on it and I want to pick three from uh, chapter eight, uh, chapter 6, chapter 8, and chapter 10 to highlight that. Paul says, yes, you say all things are lawful, but they are they beneficial? You say all things are lawful, yes, but don't be dominated by any. But make sure our freedom is positive. It is beneficial for us. Make sure our freedom doesn't Hold us in bondage, whether it's bondage to caffeine or bondage to tobacco or bondage to something that you are under control. Then he says in chapter 8, take, make sure that this liberty of yours does not in some way stumble the weak. So yes, you have liberty, you have freedom in Christ. But sometimes when you act on it, you stumble a weaker Christian. So he take note of that. And then in chapter 10, he says, yes, all things are lawful, but not all things built up. Does it edify? Does it build the body? Does it bring blessing to the community? So these are guidelines that Paul says that, yes, by all means, celebrate our Christian freedom, but it is not a freedom to sin. It is not a freedom to run into sexual immorality. It is a freedom to live our lives for Christ, for our Creator. And so this is where I think we should be taking directions when it comes to marriage and singleness. I know that sometimes when I counsel uh, people, when they think about relationships and marriage, they seem to feel as if God's perfect will is like a very straight and narrow line. I must steer within it. You know, if I were to deviate by a few degrees, I'll go off tangent somehow and I end up with the wrong partner in life. And so they describe to me how if they make a small error, it will somehow snowball at the end. It is like, you know, if I don't pray carefully, then I mix around with a wrong group of Christians. Maybe I end up in a wrong small group. Maybe I'll end up in a wrong church. Maybe I'll relate with the wrong Christian and eventually the wrong spouse get the wrong children. Worse still, I get the wrong in-laws. But when we think about Paul's idea of Christian freedom, he said, no, there's a big wide expanse and breadth of abundant life that God offers to you. So don't worry, you have freedom to relate with person A, person B, person C, as long as they are Christians, you know, you're not walking into sin. You are uh, open to start a relationship with person A or person B, or you can marry this. There's so many options for you as long as it is within the realm of God's freedom in Christ. So 
don't think of it as, oh, you know, I must steer very carefully. Be, live in that freedom. Even so, when we practice that and we celebrate Holy Communion, we are offering our bodies as living sacrifice to the Lord. So let us just come and recognize that God celebrates so many things that He has given us in freedom and how we freely come before Him and offer all that of our talents, of our gifts, of our resources to glorify Him as a living sacrifice. Next is his sense of Christian responsibility. Yes, we are free to make choices, but with each choice, we have to carry our load. We have to bear our Christian responsibility. He says in Thessalonians, whoever does not provide for relatives and especially for family members has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And all of us, in a sense, if we are children, we have filial responsibilities to our parents. If you are a parent, you have responsibilities for your children. If you are a spouse, you have responsibilities. And Paul is saying that, yes, whatever choice you make, you freely make, you live up to those responsibilities. Of course, he underlined that the single person has less worries, especially in their time. He talked about how they have less anxieties, they can be focused, they can be more devoted. And when the crisis comes, he underlined that, the singles has a less difficult time because the married has to worry about the things of their family. So he says, sure, those who choose to marry, first you must remember, Verses 3 and 4, he says, you need to give and submit to your spouse. That is your Christian responsibility. And here he talks about husband, you should give. You know? And uh, then the spouse should also be giving. But there is a relationship where if you read through it, you realize that both husband and wives have responsibility to one another. And it is interesting that even the wife has those rights. This is in a society where the slaves and the women have very low priority and almost no rights. They are like a piece of furniture. And yet he says this, probably from his Jewish upbringing. Okay. And also in verse 5, he says that you need to fulfill the needs of your spouse. These are also your Christian responsibility if you choose marriage. So for example, he says that some of you try to deprive one another. He says, except for perhaps agreement for a set time, so that Satan does not tempt and this is an issue because some of these ultra-spiritual people say, oh, you know, Paul says to pray unceasingly. And I'm on this season of prayer, so my spouse, don't touch me. I'm going to sleep in another room and I'm going to avoid contact with you. And some of them may be from non-Christian uh, families, the only Christian in the home. And if they do this, it is going to create a lot of pressure and you can imagine you're playing the devil's advocate by doing this. That's what Paul is saying. So he says that it is true. We all have a sex drive and you, this is God-given. You have to honor your spouse to fulfill their needs. Then he talked about honoring the vows of marriage and he goes through in verses 10 to 16. And again, these are some of the values that are not 
unheard of in the Greek culture. He says to the married, you should not separate. And so it again underlines what Jesus has taught, that once you have taken the vows of marriage and marriage is ordained by God, it is for life. And how Paul underlines it and says that, I expect you to be to be faithful in your marriage because some were married Christian to Christian. Some, they are now a Christian, but they are married to a non-Christian. And some, they are a Christian, they are married into an anti-Christian household where there is a lot of pressure and persecution. So you can imagine the different combinations of people in marriages. The slaves had it bad too. And so you can imagine there are all kinds of questions they're asking Paul, but Paul maintained, keep your marriage vows as much as possible. Okay? And then he says he should not divorce. And then uh, he tries to underline that this is as far as possible for life. Of course, there are situations where the unbelieving partner separates. They say, let it be so. Because if they throw you out of the house, what can you do? If they refuse you and throw you out. But he says, look at this line. It is to peace that God has called you. It is to peace that God has called you. And he even suggests that you should give it the best shot. Because how would you know? Because God is using you, the lone Christian in the family as the channel of grace to your spouse, to this household, to this clan. Don't take that for granted. For your children too. And so there is a possibility of bringing the good news to this family, to this household, that is anti-Christian, that is non-Christian, that is against you. You may never know because this is how God may work out His grace. God might save. So He's saying, Give it your best shot. Don't just take these things for granted. And again, he says, don't you recognize that it is to peace that God has called you. The Christian ought to be there as a peacemaker, the peace lover. After all, Jesus is a prince of peace. So don't let it be said that this Christian is a cause for division in the home. This Christian is a cause for that conflict at home. This Christian is a cause for the failure in the family. Not that. You should be the one who is the peacemaker because God has called you to play that special role. So this is at least his principle and guideline in our responsibility. So too, as we come to the Lord for Holy Communion, let's think about it. How, as we come before Him, He even said, let us examine ourselves before we eat the bread and drink the cup. It is important for all of us, especially those of us married, how we are fulfilling our marital responsibilities before the Lord. Because it is grave, it is important, and it is also life-giving, as Paul has suggested. How the grace of God, we are that channel to our non-Christian families and clan. The fourth area that I think Paul looks in perspective is for good order and devotion to the Lord. So this is another angle that he picks up, and this is another angle that he wants us to think about. 
Of course, he relates that there are many advantages of being single. He talks about the anxiety, less anxiety for the unmarried. How the married man has a lot of that. And then he talks in view of the, you know, even your interest as an unmarried. You know, you do not have all this uh, focus on so many things that the married person has to think about. But then he underlines it here. I say this for your own benefit, not to put any restraint upon you. So he was, you know, kind of rah-rahing about celibacy. But he says, I say all this, but it is for your benefit, just like everything is lawful for you, but not all things are beneficial. So think about it, whether it is to your benefit. I'm not putting a restraint on you again, although I say all these rara things about celibacy, not to put a restraint on you, but in order to promote good order and unhindered devotion to the Lord. Have you ever tried to counsel a person on marriage and singleness? You will realize that it is not one size fits all. Everybody is different. Even a married couple, no two married couples of the same age or the same uh, profession have the same struggles. Okay? You probably want to meet face to face and figure out with them. You treat everything as a case by case basis. No two cases are the same. The last thing you want to do is write a letter and counsel them. But Paul did not have all those comforts. You see, Paul's difficult task when he had to address their questions on marriage and singleness, he was 300 kilometers away across the sea in Ephesus when he had to write this letter to them. No doubt he spent one and a half years in Corinth and know a little bit about that infant church when he founded it. That was three or four years ago since then. And many of the new converts, he don't know their context and what they were struggling with. There was great sexual immorality in this city. You know the Greek word when they say to Corinthianize, to describe a person to Corinthianize, it means to practice sexual immorality, debauchery and drunkenness. That's the popularity of this word that was passed around in the Greek environment. So you can imagine this city is such a sinful city and a typical Corinthian is thought about to be like that. They had varied marriage practices. The slaves had one style of getting married. Some people don't even bother to register their marriage or have a special ceremony. And people come and go and some parents were known to sell off their children as brides and other people would buy someone as a bride. So their marriage practices were varied. There were many people upset in the marriages they found themselves in after conversion. Then you get the radical Christian theology. Those that say Christ is coming soon. And so they began to abandon their farm. They began to abandon their livelihood. They began to abandon their family because they were not happy. And they just go off to the hills because there was a prophecy that Christ will come by the end of the month. And yeah, so don't. And that was how the early church was because they didn't want to keep their CPF. They sold their, their home and just gave it all to the poor because they thought Jesus was coming next week. So why do you bother about keeping your CPF when Jesus is coming next week? So this was the, the, the radical things that were happening at that time and the crisis mode they were in. 
There were other people anxious for change. They were saying to themselves, now I have freedom in Christ. I have a new destiny. I'm a new creation in Christ. So I want to break away from my old form, my old status, marital status, economic status, and, and social status. I want to break out from it and be free. So you have a lot of things that were going upside down in the church because there were converts talking about all this. And so Paul is saying, I say this for your own benefit. You know, to sum it all up, I just want to tell you, it is for your benefit. You need to figure it out according to the freedom that you have in Christ. I don't want to put any restraint upon you, even though I'm saying celibacy is good. But in order to promote some kind of good order and unhindered devotion to the Lord. This is my advice and this is where I'm coming from. Can you read my letter that way? So when he says that, we understand why he says in verse 1 to 7, celibacy is good, marriage is normal. Understand that celibacy is not for everyone. Do you have the gift from God? If you don't have, you will find that your constantly under Satan's temptation because you're going to be struggling. And I say to you, flee sexual immorality. It is better to marry than to burn with lust. So in the Corinthian culture, it is better to marry if you cannot have that gift of celibacy. Be realistic. And I'm telling you that a marriage is not sinful. It is not unspiritual. Neither is it uh, evil. Okay, so, so that's what Paul is talking about for good order and devotion. That's why I highlight all this. And then he says, for good order and devotion also, I leave my rule in all churches. So this is probably something general that he leaves with them because people were stirring for change immediately after becoming new persons in Christ, especially perhaps the slave generation, the slave profession. And he says, first of all, it is most important, obeying the commandments of God is everything. So go back to that because Christ is our everything. He's our fulfillment. So I want you to remain with God. Don't be agitated for change immediately. But I want for each of you to remain and lead the life that the Lord has already assigned you when He first called you. Whatever it is, remain with God. God is going to be your reward. God is going to be your goal. God is going to be your peace. God is going to be your refuge and your strength. So don't be too quick to try this, try that, because that could be human qualities or human standards that you're aiming after. So too, when we come for Holy Communion, let us remember this. In good order and devotion, we remember that we want to offer our bodies uh, that we may be for the world, the body of Christ. That as a church united, we are going to the world as the body of Christ represents Christ in the world. And Paul was thinking about that for the Corinthians church, how things were going upside down now that some of them got converted and they want to agitate for change. They were deserting their families. They were doing irresponsible things. He says, in the name of good order and devotion to the Lord. So each time we celebrate this, we also remember how we are presenting ourselves as that body of Christ to the world. So let me sum up like that. There are so many issues 
and Paul cannot address every one of them. We don't even know what were the questions exactly that they were asking Paul. So we are trying to read in between the lines to kind of guess. Maybe they are asking this, maybe they are asking that. But mainly Paul is telling them, I'm coming from this perspective of Christ returning soon and also the crisis that will follow. The freedom we have in Christ, by all means as Christians, live freely, but it is a freedom to glorify God. Make your choices, but be responsible as you make your choices. Live up to them in the name of good order and devotion to the Lord. We want to be that body of Christ for the world, to present ourselves united for the world to see what it is like. In a time of Corinth, it must have been very, very difficult. But I pray that we follow some of these principles that he has given in application to our lives in marriage and in singleness. Let us close in prayer. Dear Lord, we recognize that all of us have our different struggles pertaining to these issues of marriage and of singleness. But we want to center ourselves in Christ. Lord, as Paul says, we should remain with God and we want our lives to be centered on you. You are our goal, you are our reward, you are our fulfillment, you are our desire. Come, Holy Spirit, would you fill us? Would you come and transform us even as we yield ourselves to you? Not looking at all the struggles and trials that we have, but to present them to you and ask that you come and transform us as your lamps. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.